Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Last year alone, we had 13 companies that defaulted on their financial maintenance company. Insurance companies have embraced new ideas. Cost of capitals has gone up higher. It's critically important what's happening with the jewelry market for gold. The Fed's been trying to fight inflation with these rate hikes. The timing is just perfect. Once the market stabilizes, you should start to see an influx of deal flow. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today, we have a very very good topic. We're going to be talking about global private markets, and we're joined today by Nalika De Silva, head of private market solutions at Aberdeen. Nalika, thanks for being on, man. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, great to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation. It is May 5. You are in Aberdeen, and I am outside of Chicago. I always like to timestamp these things because markets are moving so quickly. I want to start this off the way we start them all. So, where did you grow up? What was your first job, not the fancy one, and a fun fact? I grew up in Africa. I'm Sri Lankan originally. Dad's last posting was in New Zealand, where I uh, met my wife, who's from Brazil, and now we ended up in Scotland. Wow. So we've got a bit of a, you know, an unconventional background, but we're sort of international citizens, I guess would be the way to answer it. That's fantastic. How about your first job? First job? Well, I probably had a string of jobs, not the fancy one. So, um, I worked at uh, what, what was probably the first like coffee tarts that used to kind of uh, be out on the streets. I had a telemarketing job, kind of raising money for kind of a bunch of stuff, which is a great lesson in rejection. <laughs> I had one of those. I had one of those jobs. I had a couple yeah. of them, actually. You build a thick skin pretty quickly, you know, calling people on sheets, yeah. right? And then... Uh, yeah, or, or get treated for depression, one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think you know, you just, you, you build it up. You build it up. Right. You know. Yeah, that was sort of the kind of the first... Uh, before doing you really sort of I guess some kind of you know more admin related jobs and in, in offices and stuff to kind of tick the uh, the piggy bank over and what's the fun fact the global citizen thing is cool any hobbies or interests or we we I mean as you can imagine we, we love to travel as, as a family um, having grown up in Africa probably a fun fact is I've been charged by an elephant twice uh, wow. so there you go so I spent uh, 15 years in Botswana in Africa uh, growing up. And uh, we, we kind of went on safari kind of every weekend. And, you know, I can't really go to a zoo now, you know, having kind of lived life in the, in the wilderness. But um, that's probably the fun fact. That's so cool. Growing up in Missouri, we were not charged by elephants. There were, <laughs> there were many other dangers, but they were mostly in pickups. <laughs> they were mostly in pickup trucks. It's, uh, yeah, it was a pretty nerve-wracking experience the first time. The second time, bizarrely, it happened kind of around, um, and uh, we kind of knew what to do at that point. So we sort of you know stepped away uh, wow. yeah, briskly. So <laughs> Aberdeen has an interesting story and an interesting name, right? Aberdeen is abbreviated lowercase A-B-R-D-N, but you pronounce right. it Aberdeen. That's a branding thing, right? And yeah. Aberdeen has been running insurance money for literally a couple of centuries, right? So could you give us a quick background for on Aberdeen, just so that if folks don't know kind of much about the firm, I got a lesson when you guys came on our platform. I just think it would be helpful because your history is rich and you run a lot more money than people I think may know on their own. And so any of that background would be helpful as just kind of a starting point. I guess it uh, was founded its roots uh, line, a business called Standard Life, which uh, was founded in 1825, if I kind of recall correctly. And, and actually, 
there the Canadian business was founded in not shortly after you know 1837. So Standard Life has been doing kind of insurance and insurance related um, asset management for you know close to 200 years. So we've got a very long, rich heritage in in insurance product and management and asset management as a result of decades of of investment in that space. There was a merger between um, Standard Life and Aberdeen Asset Management, which is the combination of the two businesses brought us to, you know, close to you know five hundred billion dollars of assets under management. You know, we're one of the largest asset managers in Europe, and as a result, have a, a broad range of client types now, from insurance companies to pensions, insurance, wealth, and uh, investing across uh, multiple asset classes, both public and private. We've got fixed income equities, and then a range of private market assets, and then we distribute that majority to um, European, but have a growing presence in Asia. And in the US, we sort of try to bring the best of our abilities to help you know clients in, in America as we sort of look at very much uh, you know, things like risk management, passive hedge fund strategies, things that are a bit unique that you know you can't get from local players. So yeah, we're a, we're a really interesting shop, you know, long history and heritage and, and deep sort of, uh, you know, ideally kind of, we think of ourselves as thoughtful investors having had the, um, the depth of experience and history. That's really cool. I just, the 500 billion number is the number that just floored me. I was like, wow, I didn't. And I feel like I know this space pretty well. Right. And it, it's like, it's, cause it's all the heck I do. And it, it was just, I was really astounded. Like, wow. I mean, I just, I just didn't realize that. Yeah. I think we've a 200 of that is, is insurance money as well. You know, given the background and, and having had standard life as a parent and that business was sold and we're, you know, now an independent asset management company, but we still have a, a very strong insurance heritage in that context. Yeah, it's interesting. So your role as the head of private markets, can you talk a little bit about your strategy in global private markets? I think it's an interesting one and it would be good to kind of get your take on where you see value, why you think it's compelling, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So I sort of founded the Solutions Desk in 2014, 15. And what that was designed to do was to bring together, I guess, the best ideas and implementation across private markets. So that's you know venture capital, private equity, infrastructure, private credit, natural resources, and do that in a kind of systematic way. So we could sort of harvest the risk premium that we're generating in that part of the market and make it that one accessible to a broader range of clients. But also, we were going through a declining bond yield environment where growth and return outlooks were, were getting stretched. And so you really needed to find a new source of risk premium. And so that was the intention of doing that. We then spent quite a lot of time trying to figure out how to implement that on a global basis. So, you know, private markets have been around before even public markets, you know, so it's been around for a long time. And once it became a bit more mainstream, we looked at ways of incorporating private market assets into what I describe as more traditional portfolios. So running both public and private as hybrid portfolios and then running essentially pure play private market portfolios that were diversified by industry, by category, by geography. And that's a really interesting strategy because you diversify a lot of the risk away than investing in just one PE fund or an infrastructure fund or a real estate fund and allows you to play some really long-term themes. So if we look at things that are shaping the world as we go, technology is driving things, which really plays to the, the venture and PE part of the market, demographics changing the world, that's placed to infrastructure, real estate, schools, hospitals, transport, energy generation. Sustainability is a major topic at the moment, decarbonization and resource scarcity. So private markets plays a much greater role in capital formation now. And uh, you know, and the amount of new issuance coming out of the private markets has outpaced public markets for some time. So giving investors access to that in a systematic way uh, was really kind of the thesis. And we've been pleased to have 
kind of deliver that in a, a single strategy for our clients in Europe and um, on separate account basis for some of the larger clients globally. Outstanding. That's really helpful. And I always say on these podcasts, I'm so fortunate because they get to learn right from very, very skilled individuals who have particular market expertise. And so it's interesting, the timing of this podcast, because yesterday I got a call from a friend who suggested that we, and I think we're going to do this, we're going to create a podcast series called Do Dilly. And the idea is, particularly given where we are in the economic cycle, I think a lot of people are talking about, hey, what happens if things don't go quite right? What happens if in whatever strategy it is, particularly private markets, what happens if there's defaults? What happens if there's, you know, in private structure, for example, what happens, right? So that conversation was very timely because you have a tool called PRISM, which I think stands for Private Investment Sensitivity Model, and is really designed to monitor risk, right? So what can you share with us about PRISM and the way that you use it in managing portfolios? So I guess PRISM to us was, it was founded in, in a really basic sort of format. How sensitive were our private market assets to different sort of attributes or factors? And it very much started off, you know, I kind of describe it as a sort of 20 year overnight success because, you know, no one really cared a, a heck of about risk when it was 2% of your portfolio. But when it's 40% of your portfolio, you kind of want to know what's going on in your private markets portfolio. So um, what it aims to do is to break down systematically some of the things that are key drivers and as, as you can imagine, there's a lot of opacity in private markets, right? You can't figure out, you can't go and kind of download position statements. You don't know what's inside an asset. So we spent a lot of time looking at how to systematically break down some of these, what I call them attributes. So we, we've got three main attributes, I guess. One is idiosyncratic. So what's happening at the, the company level? So what's happening in their corporate strategy? What's happening in you know their, their kind of long-term business plan? How does their operating platform operate? All of those things. And I guess that manifests itself in, I guess, getting quite a lot of granular data around its P&L, balance sheet, cash flow. So we can ask questions, uh, you know, what if you can't repay your debt? At what point do you go insolvent? You know, and those are almost like credit related questions. Gives you kind of default propensity. Then you kind of step up a level to say, okay, well, I've got a bunch of assets that happen to be operating quite idiosyncratically, but actually they're quite connected by supply chain or they're connected by revenue streams. So we look at market attributes. So what does that mean by country, by sector, by geography? things that are related to tax or political kind of regimes at the, the market level. And then on top of that, you know, we've got what we call macro attributes. So those are things that how do the assets sort of sensitize when it comes to valuations, when there's movements in GDP, inflation expectations, business cycle, how much of it's cyclical, how much of it's not. So, so through all of that, I guess you needed to have kind of a, a very defined codified framework to think about that because it's quite a broad topic. It's really quite heavy from a calculation standpoint. So we we spent a lot of time architecting around that to try and get some sense around it. And we partnered with Cambridge University here in, in the UK, which are their center of risk studies, which was a think tank that we were part of, which had, you know, insurers, banks, risk managers, all looking to price risk as part of their products. And and we were coming at it from um, essentially the investment side. So 
So yeah, it's been the foundational process that allows us to underwrite each of our assets into our portfolio. And as a result of that, we can sort of create a little bit of telemetry across the portfolio that perhaps others haven't been able to do historically. Starting from the really basic questions like, let's look at an investment, let's look at its cash flow profile. When do we expect the cash flow to come back, whether it's a credit asset or a sale of a business? And what is the propensity of that cash flow to turn up on time as I describe it? Because you know these things are all variable and you've got different rates of uncertainty. So, so when we build a portfolio, it's not just you know, a collection of, of assets. You know, we try to synthesize that into one of the key drivers of the portfolio intrinsically for the, from the asset level all the way up to the portfolio. And then what are the main key risk elements that, you know, whether it be interest rate risk, if that's going to affect the cash flow by meaning the company can't pay its, its interest payments because it's on floating rates and it goes bust. Or on the credit side, it might be beneficial to us to have a floating rate plus spread loan in the portfolio. So yeah, it's it's used very much at the center of our global private markets program because it's very difficult to provide any kind of consistency around language across even inter-asset classes by geography. So if we're building a port in Latin America, or if we're owning you know a gas pipeline in the Nordics, or if we happen to have a residential uh, building in China, we've got to try and bring all of those things together to say, how much risk are you taking in the portfolio? And you've got to be quite systematic about that. And I think that's the beauty of PRISM is it, it, it really sort of, you know, it's a neat acronym, but it sort of allows us to have a different lens across the portfolio mix. Whenever I'm talking with someone like you, I put on my CIO hat that has been lent to me by uh, my CIO buddies that are like, you can put this on, but just only during podcasts. I'm like, okay. So if I'm, I'm an investor, and I'm looking at making an allocation with Aberdeen and I'm trying to figure out what does Prism do for me as an investor or client of yours? So it really gives them, I guess, a number of lenses to look at your portfolio through. So if you're just looking at, at, a, at a really basic level, how to allocate capital efficiently into the marketplace by asset class, it'll give you... You know, through all the data that we've collected and the cash flow profiles that we've seen over the years, what we think the expected drawdown distribution profile looks like. And then you've got to ask some questions around, okay, is the expected return realistic or not? And then that takes you to the next level of, I guess, understanding that if you're expecting a cash flow to turn back to you in seven years' time, that's going to be driven by a number of things. How much of that, let's say it was a private equity asset, was going to be driven by earnings growth, M&A activity, you know, multiples changing and the liquidity in the market at that time to exit the asset. So any of those variables change, that changes the exit about the quantum that you're going to get in the future. And because we're talking about the future, there's a high degree of uncertainty, particularly five, seven, 10 years out when some of these assets are due to mature. So you've got that long-term perspective that you've got to kind of build in. And then there's the near-term stuff, which is like you, we talked about earlier, is like, what happens now? What happens if there's a credit crunch? What happens if there's no liquidity in the market? I can't just trade these things out of the portfolio like I can on, on the liquid side of the market. So I really need to be monitoring some of these things. And what we really tried to do there is to, to be more like a credit analyst in that context. You know, Let's just monitor these assets, make sure we're getting the data in from our managers. And there's a high degree of, of variability of the data that you get, depending on how big you are, how important you are from some of these you know, private equity or private markets managers. And so you know, we negotiate quite heavily to get high quality of, of, of direct information from our managers, you know, legally, we're signing that up into limited partnership agreements and things like that to make sure we have that information flow. 
and then just having good access to management to make sure that we really understand their strategy and leave them to do what they do best, which is to manage the assets. But at a portfolio construction level, a client will be able to say, actually, I know what I'm exposed to, because typically sometimes they don't, they don't even know where their assets are in some cases, and then be able to build a, I guess, a risk framework around that. And we've taken, a, I guess, an enterprise risk approach to that to say, well, what are the things that are going to break the portfolio? What are the things that are going to you know, impact the portfolio materially to create defaults and ultimately zero out your return? And if we think about all of these things as sort of streams of cash flows, it sort of simplifies it a little bit. But um, under the hood, there's actually quite a lot of detail that needs to go into working out if whether these private assets are going to deliver performance or not. And, and in the most pay, they will. The question is how much and whether you're getting paid for the risk. Yeah, it's interesting when I taught. I mean, I, I taught finance in a number of different flavors, right? But at the end of the day, you know, finance is about valuing cash flows in and out. And you're trying to, to assign a risk, some probability, the certainty of those cash flows, the timing of those cash flows, and assign a discount rate to them that is appropriate for the risk, right? And then you're trying to look at the, what is that NPV versus what I can buy it for in the market? And what factors are going to or have the potential to impact that, right? So one of the things I've said over time, and I don't know how it will strike you, but the most dangerous risk you face is the one you're, you aren't aware of. I think sometimes things happen in financial markets, and, and you saw it with SVB, right? You go, SVB goes down, and a couple of others have too. And there wasn't a default. There wasn't a problem with the quality of their assets. It was they didn't manage their ALM properly, right? So in my notes, I have risk transparency before risk optimization. That seems like philosophically you're trying to make sure that you understand the risks that you're exposed to. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people try to optimize in different ways and they use methods or techniques which, you know, grounded in good financial theory, but not particularly applicable when it comes to private market assets, right? So in order to really understand these assets, you need to know what's going to break them. And that's where risk transparency is important. You need to know some stuff that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And once you've got that sort of minimum data set, you can enrich it. And it's going from kind of basic financial data to then what we describe as sort of operational KPIs to then, and what we're describing is sort of, you know, real world risk, you know, tagging things that are appropriate. How much of your revenues are coming from certain geographies? What's your headquarters? What are your logistics like? Where are your assets located physically in the event of dealing with what I call the kind of localized issues, which would then become macro issues, right? So if you happen to own a real, real estate or a real asset portfolio, whether it be infrastructure assets or real estate. It kind of matters where it is. <laughs> and if we think about environmental issues, if there's water stresses or heat stresses, or if there's geopolitical tensions, things like that, then these types of things start, start manifesting itself. And so, so once you know some of this stuff, the risk transparency then allows you to optimize the portfolio in different ways. So how much, if you want to take a lens across the portfolio to say, well, how much of my revenues in this portfolio are associated with a particular feature or attributes? You know, you can then look through the portfolio in that way. Then you can run a kind of correlation engine against it to say, well, what happens? You know, in public markets, some of these companies they operate in real life, but you know, if if these events happen, how do you um, expect them to respond? And and the work that we did with Cambridge was really codifying 
I guess, a taxonomy of business risk. And uh, we could probably have a separate podcast just on that because there's so many different types of things that that business risks and businesses are trying to deal with from you know, macro issues, supply chain, cybersecurity, natural disasters, all that kind of stuff. And so that allows us to do two things. One, it will say, well, when you constructed your portfolio, it was a bit like the old days when people used to say, well, stock selection is brilliant. I'm really good at picking names and, you know, they can make money. And then you find out they're all stuck in kind of oil and gas <laughs> when, right. yeah. you know, the market's selling off, right? You're like, no, yeah. no, they, individually, they're brilliant, but actually they're clustered. And so, right. yeah. um, so we're doing the same thing on the private side. We're, we're sort of understanding where the cluster of risk lies and then trying to sensitize that. And we, we've done that through, I guess, like you described it before, it's that DCF approach around the free cash flows, what happens when you stretch those free cash flows and how do you price the discount rates? And one of the metrics we sort of sort of landed on is sort of what we describe as EE or EV at risk, which is enterprise value or earnings value at risk. To say when one of these events happen, there's different likelihoods and severities, but when one of these events happen, you know, how much of your earnings ultimately are going to get diminished or how much capex or cash flow are you going to have to apply to remedy something? which will then ultimately change your cost of capital or how a market perceives you and which will then you know drive value. And once you have that lens on it, you can actually say, well, actually, this thing is pretty bulletproof or it, it doesn't, it takes quite a lot to break this basket of assets once we've got those sort of attributes associated. And we've been running the global program in this format for five years now, and we've been through probably the most volatile marketplace I've ever seen. And having this sort of lens associated with the portfolio has really been brilliant from that standpoint. So and it's good to explain it in a really a simplistic way to our clients because all of the technicals behind the hood are very complex and we do all that work. But actually, when we explain to them why we've chosen an asset, how it fits into the portfolio, why it's resilient to those features, and why we think it's going to be robust you know, over a 5, 10, 20-year period, I think it gives them a little bit more confidence that they're not buying a collection of assets, they're actually buying a portfolio that's been curated appropriately. And that's what I would say it gives to a client. It gives them, you know, ability to to look at a portfolio with some confidence around its expected outcome. You are in a unique position to have a a global perspective and five hundred billion dollars behind you. As you look out today, where do you see value in private markets, and what concerns you? So it depends over, I guess, what time frame. But in terms of, you know, if we're deploying capital over the next six to 12 months, you know, I think the rates and inflation environment is probably the biggest concern about what that does. You know, it'll, uh, from an asset allocation perspective, you don't have to carry the same amount of risk to generate, let's call it mid, you know, five, 6% returns now, right? So what that means is that, you know, a repricing exercise is likely to happen in the near term to deal with let's call it the inflection point of inflation rates and the next where we think the lower bound sort of sits. If the lower bound is high, we're, it's going to be rough. If the lower bound is low, we'll end up going back to kind of a world where, you know, asset and risk assets are, are probably okay. So that that's sort of the macro piece of that. And I think that's sort of where we see value could, could lie in short duration private credit, for example, where you've got high base rate and high margin as a result of, you know, people paying up for, you know, flexibility of finance, the ability to deal with working capital more effectively. So we're seeing quite good spreads in total returns in private credit. And I think the interesting thing about that is that whilst those returns are good, as well as the default propensity that's associated with the underlying corporates. <laughs> so whilst capital formation is happening in a different way now, and the banks perhaps have less balance sheet capacity, and the traditional lenders are being kind of taken by private credit lenders, 
the risk that those underlying corporates are under or the stresses that they're under is actually potentially mispriced in, in some parts of the market. So we're, we're sort of looking at that quite carefully. But there is quite strong value to be had in, in private credit markets. The um, Looking at private equity and venture capital, venture capital probably got a bit frothy a little while ago and continues to be frothy in some segments. But we've just seen, you know, I think we're on the cusp or we're probably working through a kind of some form of fourth industrial revolution with AI and automation really kind of taking to the fore. So we will see some really productive companies come out of the use of digitization. And that really excites us from a kind of where can some of these companies generate growth and profits and, and reduce their overheads and capex requirements, but actually have strong earnings growth. So that I think value lies that I think multiples are still pretty expensive. So we'll sort of see how that that comes through. But um, there's some very strong indications that private equity and venture capital will continue to generate strong returns, but don't get caught up in the hype cycle. Make sure you look at the assets and understand you know, which of these businesses are going to be transformational. I think infrastructure, because of decarbonization and what's going around globally and the policy responses that are happening to either fund transitional assets and moving from carbon to less carbon intensive, will have very long-term drivers which show value. And I think at different points in the cycle, depending on the policy responses are, are playing out by country by country, we've seen lots of subsidies put in place that have been released. But as, as these things become more mainstream, the risk of stranded assets, you know, is something that you need to be conscious of. And then looking at the next generation of, you know, energy, both generation and distribution and, you know, carbon intensive sort of industries, I think will be will be really interesting space going forward. So yeah, there's a there's a lot happening globally. And by asset class, you know, I think there's definitely nuances in in which segments and markets are are, are being driven by public policy as well as local initiatives. But it's a, it's a pretty fascinating place to be investing at the moment. I have learned so much from you. I really appreciate you being on. I've got one more wrap question. I've got two. You can take your pick. Best piece of advice you ever got or who would you most like to have lunch with alive or dead? Ooh. <laughs> you like the latter question. I love it. That's yeah, great. Uh... <laughs> You know, if if I could, and if I could speak Italian, I would love to have sat down with uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Wow, there you go. That's so cool. You know, that would, you know, people that are, are visionaries in their space and can do the things that they did at that time would be um, It's remarkable. Be fascinating. That's so cool. <laughs> well, I've learned a lot today, and I, I really appreciate you being on, Malika. Seriously, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. And um, yeah, look, uh, if, you know, if anyone wants to discuss kind of this type of topic and, and you know, if you want to grab a table with kind of like-minded, thoughtful uh, investors that want to kind of trade notes, uh, we'd love to do that and we can do it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We've been joined by Nalika De Silva, Head of Private Market Solutions at Aberdeen. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We certainly appreciate it. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Mm-hmm.